My name is William Corliss and this is the Workplace Podcast. Brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation. Your external learning and development partner. Each week we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who will be subject matter experts, who I believe are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life, with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams, and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team, and organization. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Our guest today needs no introduction to our Irish listeners. For our international listeners, Gordon Darcy was a member of Ireland's golden generation of Irish rugby players, former British and Irish Lions with two Six Nations, including a Grand Slam. He's a commercial, a chief commercial officer with Kids Labs, a non-executive director with several organizations, communist with the Irish Times, children's book author, and Ambassador for Children's Charity, Barrettstown. Gordon, very welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And our topic today is in praise of the informal leader. It's the importance to teams and organizational culture. And when we spoke yesterday in our briefing meeting, we talked about many different things uh, there relating to this. And we talked about your formative years where talent meets responsibility. We talked about key pivotal moments in your career um, and where you made recently a connection between values and success and the importance of feedback to you throughout your career and how you see that as really important to organizations. And then this led us then to culture and really understanding the types of leaders that are out there, which leads us to the formal leader so again in in terms of that Gordon where would you like to start where do you think is good do you think we should start with the formative years again yeah possibly actually I never asked you this yesterday uh, do you prefer William or Will William is good perfect well, my friends call me Willie they'd be very impressed if you keep calling me Willie during the podcast <laughs> uh, we've, we've got Scan, Figs and, and Chops and Dick who would love to hear that but anyway well, no, I said a name and that wasn't scripted <laughs> no but, no like, it wasn't William, uh, so like William, I, I, I love uh, this whole topic. Um, we, we will start at the, I think the formative years is, is, is really uh, important. Um, and it gives good insight to my personality and I suppose the, just maybe the way I process things as well, which was very important into the professional um, side of me in, in rugby, in the elite sport and su- surviving in that um, high performance teams and then now into that the, the next part of my life uh, which is into the into, into the corporate world but the informal leader you know and it's it's great that they finally got a a classification because there's always stars and there's always people that are accused of sinking the ship or just doing the bare minimum and then there's the leaders and everything like that but they are nothing without that cohort in the middle that really drive the success because I, I suppose when you when you think about it and, and, and this is obviously a very very broad brush strokes but when you design anything for a group of people 
there'll be 20% of people that you never have to worry about because they are so driven. What you have to do is maintain or, or, or focus their energy in the correct way. And then you have 20% of people that no matter what you do, you will largely not be able to do much with. Um, and, and in sport, it's very different because you can do something with them, you can get rid of them. <laughs> That's not yeah. as easy in the workplace and nor should it. Um, and it's how to manage them. But that 60% of the me- in the middle, that's where you have that, where those informal leaders can thrive because they're the ones, and we're going to touch on this very, and it's talking about the culture and the values. They're the people that do simple things well every day that have a huge resonance around any sort of an organization. Um, so I think it's a brilliant topic for today. Um, where did it all start? Like with, for me, you know, the... I went to uh, I went to a private school in uh, County Kildare called Congresswood College. Uh, as we were talking yesterday, I said that I only uh, I only joined a series of dots about the six years I spent there. That there is an awful lot put on values. There was no talk of culture, and that's maybe why I didn't very slow to join the dots. But the values in there are. You know, the one of the key ones that was often reminded to me by uh, um, one of the Jesuits, Father Shield, was we are men for others. And, you know, yeah. and even through the school, I didn't really grasp it, but I under I understood it that, you know, at the start of it, I was good at rugby and I was there, I only want to be good at rugby um, and that's enough. And he said, no, as I, as, as I progressed in the school, it, it was continually reminded, said, no, if you want to be in that privileged position of representing the school in a sporting context, you need to maintain every aspect of your life and you need to be academic. You need to be as good as you can You can be in academics. You don't have to be the best. You just have to be as good as you can be in academics. You have to be socially responsible. So you have to behave accordingly at moments where other people will, you know, that, that you can influence other people. And this rarely sat well with me for a long time. And then in the last two years of school, I it kind of dawned on me that I was there going, do you know what? It's not only is it easier to get into this and accept the whole thing but I actually kind of went it's actually kind of fun as well because doing and it's not nice things but being responsible having individual responsibility you can take pride in that where Mm. if you're the messer if you're this if you're that or you only want to be the maverick rugby player or whatever it is you'll you'll end up going by the wayside and uh, you know so this eventually kind of you know um happened quite quite well and um i had some key uh, i suppose people that understood me and i know this is something we're going to talk about later is understood that human capital and understanding the individual so i mentioned father shield and like patience i can only imagine um uh, you know i often i think every parent we talk you talk about you have a finite amount of patience on a, on a daily basis and young kids are, are genetically designed to test that um and I must have tested every sinew or every ounce of, of their of their patients in school. But they helped me on that journey of understanding of what responsibility. Now, it was very much a, there's a great anecdote around um, knowledge. Sometimes knowledge can't be taught, it has to be learnt. Um, and this was mm. definitely one of those, one of those type of things. And then I had a, a rugby coach who was the assistant uh, headmaster, Vinnie Murray, and he definitely understood how to get the best out of me and it was that challenge so I have and I know I have 
an innate competition. My biggest, the biggest person in the competition with is myself all the time. When yeah. I start something, it's just how do I shut up that voice in my head? Because I want to crack and beat that voice into the ground. Um, and Vinny always, you know, just little challenges. Oh, have you thought about this? Do you think you could do this? Can you do this? And then, you know, that happened on the rugby field and then it transcended out, out into my life in the school where it was, you know, Gordon, you know, to play in the team, you know, that little prompts around the uh, educational pieces there going, you know, rugby is a privilege and we're here to learn. We're not here to play rugby and, you know, you can't have one without the other. And I was open to that. Yeah. I was open to that um, statement and that ultimatum once I had a little bit older and that, and then it kind of sat well with me and I kind of dived into the rugby, into the education piece. And I was like, okay, I, I actually can do this. Um, and you mentioned being a children's author um, and we've actually taken an awful lot of these, myself and Paul Howard, we've taken an awful lot of these stories and challenges I had as young people. And we actually have reflected them into a, into a children's book. And it's been, it's been really enjoyable um, flicking back through these. And I'm just curious then, Gordon, because these patterns that we, we do, whether it be rebellion or not really under grasping the importance of taking on responsibility. Then you were talking to me about um, when you were going in for contract negotiations. And, uh, you know, there's an interesting story that you have there in terms of taking on responsibility. Oh, yeah, it's brilliant. Uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly does rhyme. So this was the young... Gordon Darcy, a 12, 13, 14 year old who was like, oh, I don't want to, you know, don't hold me responsible, you know, and then a 17, 18 year old grasps the concept of it. Should be plain sailing from there? Of course not. So I've in, gone into, I did my leaving search for, you know, the international, that's the audience, that's the A-levels or high school finished, uh, depending on where, where, you, where you are. Um, and I turned professional two weeks after that and, you know, went from a very, very organized uh, uh, institution for want of a better way I think it was 36 bells went off every day didn't need a watch you, you, you knew by the bell where you had to be went into professional rugby game had gone professional in 1995 was very um, amateur self-serving kind of a ethos you were getting paid but you know we were still amateur so I was out of a boarding school did everything I shouldn't do got over, overweight drinking too much you know messing not really not really dedicated so going into this meeting as you said with my coach I thought we were going in to get a uh, negotiated contract and he informed me that they were letting me go and I was like oh right um, so he said listen uh, you know to paraphrase the whole story he said we'll give you four weeks to save your contract so this, um, I walked away from that meeting, obviously kind of nodding, going, oh, you know, what do I do? And the initial reaction, screw him. I'll go to England. I'll go to another club and I'll show them that I'm brilliant and it's them, not me. My dad is a guy that doesn't say a huge amount of things. When he does, there's usually a bit of weight in it. I kind of there like, listen, just be careful. You know, when you're pointing fingers out, there's three pointing back at you. And, and I didn't, didn't like hearing that. Um, but uh, you know you you you've a, you've a respect for your old man, so you just you don't say you don't you don't you don't unload the two barrels at him. But but I went away and I was really you know uncomfortable for a while because I couldn't shake this nagging feeling that something wasn't right. And um, what I did next was probably sorry. And in this interim, I you know I I did enough in the four weeks shows how how bad I was doing. I did enough in the four weeks to get a contract. It was a very poor contract and. Um, 
you know, that was fine. I was signed into Leinster at, at this point. But what I did next was, again, one, the most powerful thing that I've ever done in my life and still has resonance today. I went to about three people that I trusted, number one, and respected, number two. And these were, um, some of them were players, some of them were, you know, uh, mentor type figures. And I asked a very, very open-ended question. I said, how do you think I'm doing? Now, I would later learn with uh, a, a good friend of mine, Enda McNulty, who's a sports psychologist and now is, uh, you know, a business mentor as well, um, that you, when you ask an open-ended question like that, you have to be ready for the answers. And to be honest, I wasn't. But it was the best thing that ever happened to me because they didn't pull any punches. They told me exactly where they felt I was. Now, sorry to, to kind of speed this kind of thing up. I had a perception of where I was doing, how I was doing. I thought I was tipping along maybe a six, seven out of 10. And they unilaterally explained to me that I was at a zero, maybe a one at best. So that was really, really hard for a young person to understand is to go, oh my goodness. So my perception is here, but the reality is here. So how, uh, you know, I have no control. Sorry, I do have control. I, I thought I had no control over how people consume me, but I do. And, you know, it took, a, it took a little bit of time, a little bit of planning, a little bit of thinking, and it was like going, okay, what can I do? And now you're getting into the, you know, the, the genesis of a, of a goal-setting um, people goal that's come off the back of some pretty brutal feedback. So, yeah. you know, I, so, so what I needed to do was they're going, you know, the main thing I said was that I need to change how people perceive me and I need to align with what I'm doing with how people mm-hmm. are consuming, perceiving me or how I'm interacting with people. And that was a really, really hard challenge to try and master on my own. So what do we need to do? I need to be consistent. I need to be on time. I need to be reliable. I need to be there first, out last. All the, you know, all the anecdotes that get thrown around lazily, I need to be, I need to change, you get, you know, I need to change people's perception of me and I need to align it with what I'm doing every day. And that took about three years to do. Um, and one of the other things I put down was that if I got another chance, and I've been dropped completely out of the Irish squad at this stage, if I ever got a, another chance to be in the Irish team, one, I knew, I knew I'd be physically ready, but two, I would be mentally ready. And that was really, yeah. really important for me. And yesterday when we were talking, then you were talking about where you get feedback from is really important. So you talked about, listen, if I respect the person, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take it on board. So again, I think this is a really important piece there because you were talking about, you mentioned about where you get feedback from and you were talking about uh, even later on in your career where a younger player was giving you feedback. Do you want to tell us more about that? Yeah, William, but I think it's important to understand the environment that feedback was given in. So, yeah, um, like, so I've been in the corporate world now for about uh, five or six years, and it's not a feedback is delivered by by necessity, or it's just it's it's just it's just not delivered in a 
conducive thing because maybe the person receiving it isn't ready for it or doesn't want it or the person delivering it isn't the correct person to be to be delivering it and it's a mechanism that has to be done and it's in your contract that says you will receive quarterly reviews and that's going to dictate your promotion so it's a it's a fundamental mechanism that has to happen and, and, and that mechanism as we discussed is completely flawed now we go back mm. to the rugby play so so we have set as an organization a goal of achieving European success, which is the highest accolade we can do for our, for our club. And every player will have their own individual piece. So how do we do that? What we needed to do is align a organization to a common goal. So we did that. But that was that is set by a, um, a, a culture which is underpinned by values. But how we did this and how we aligned it as an organization is very important because what we did was every area of the organization is representative so it's the young guys the old guys the um the the, the i was going to say health and safety staff but the you know the the uh the snc uh, guys the physios the coaches the admin, the whole organization is representative so we go away and we just say listen guys how what behaviors what actions are going to help us to um achieve our ultimate goal so we go away that we're there for a couple of hours maybe a couple of days and we distill all these actions behaviors into three words now the three words are completely meaningless unless you were in that room and they were humble relentless and disciplined okay so now what happens is we have created a framework to depersonalize feedback because we have all been in that room and we've all said this is this is not the minimum standard. This is the only standard. So, yeah. Now you get into this. You know, we start pulling all these things in together, right? Because nothing exists in a vacuum. So, one of the things that happens in leadership, and we talk about cultures. In fact, people focus on an aspect of it. But as we're hopefully picking through here, there is so many, many layers that feed into. All of this. So you have a framework now where people can excel and they understand what the behavior. So we talk about that, going back to that earlier point, that 20, 60, 20 uh, category. There's the people who are going to be continually not meeting the standard. Now, you've also got people who are the Excel, they're brilliant, they're the people who are just, you know, but they're in and out, they're, 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 they're your stars. They're not necessarily the leaders of your group. They are the people who just they're just your superstars. The informal leaders and sometimes and just and generally your your kind of leadership cohort are the people sitting in that 60%, but they're the ones that embody those values, behaviors on a daily basis. And it's easy for them. And it looks and it look you look out over them and go, how do they make the those decisions? Or they, they just make them instinctively and they're they're just doing it. They're the people you respect, and they're the people who have earned you they have earned your respect. And in, more often than not, they're people that are very, very trustworthy. So the two things usually go hand in hand. So that removes an age aspect to it. Because if you go, when I would have started in Leinster, it was very hierarchical. It was done by age caps, or if you're the, you know, if you're the, uh, you hold the most sway in the room. Now, not necessarily most influence but most sway in the room you could be the you could you know the alpha yeah. male the bully whatever and you can chop people down whereas now you're into a room where they're going actually respect is predicated on people who embody the behaviors and the and the values that we have that we have set 
So in, in this example that you're talking about, it was a quite a young guy. Um, and he's actually now just recently uh, captain of Leinster. And I remember him just walking out to the pitch and, you know, the, the, the proverbial tap on the shoulder, but it wasn't. It was just walking out and oh, I must have been 10 years older than him. And him saying, giving, you know, me a bit of advice. I went away, looked at the video and went, yeah, that's right. 100%. Thank you. But I was open to it because this is a kid I respected because he was he was living what we were saying on a on a, on a daily basis. Um, and we just and the last bit the last bit just to tie, to tie that in as well is and I was kind of you know a little bit flippant about that the twenty percent that you know are, are accused of sinking the ship. But their their any sort of feedback to people like that is usually a defense mechanism. Oh, or excuses. Oh, I didn't. Traffic was bad. It was this. It was this. It was this. It was something else. But what we found was they were more open to getting better because you weren't going to them and saying, "Hey, William, this is Gordon telling you you're doing crap." This is you flip that on its head and go, "Hey, William, this is Gordon telling you you're not meeting our standard," and then you're going, oh, "Okay, I'm going to do better." Yeah, and that was the point I was going to make is this, these informal, you know, leaders when they're giving feedback to people, then these are the, the the protectors, as you said yesterday, in my words, the custodians of that culture that you've created. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think that becomes very, very important because the, the other thing we, we were saying is that they're going to transition over time as well. And you can't expect the same group of people to be there, I suppose, in, in, in perpetuity and the, and the culture and those values has to iterate with them. Um, but I do like that because it gives a, and it also gives, um, you know, for people who are in those real, um, you know, the C-suite level, uh, you know, positions that when you can create a, a scenario like what we have, and the way I kind of, I like to describe it is, is it became a self-sustaining ecosystem in that the coach at the time was able to step back and go, actually, I don't need to remind these guys that the changing room is a mess. I don't need to remind these guys that we gave away 15 penalties at the weekend. I don't need to remind these guys that training hasn't started at time. Somebody within the group is going to put their hand up and go, this is not our standard. And that becomes really, <laughs> like that's what, you know, if you talk about, leadership you talk about management you talk about any of those buzzwords that goes around at the moment empowerment that's what you want is you want people to be brave enough and comfortable enough to go guys we we're you know we're we're not seeing the wood from the trees here we're not living we're not doing what we know will help us to have a shot at what we want to achieve and that's where you, you know, we were talking about yesterday is that you co-created that together with people. And, and then it's, it's about renewing that. So you talk about that ecosystem there, oh, you yeah. know, how do you make sure that it's fit for purpose? Oh, like we, and this is, and this is the, I suppose the, again, it's the, it's the life. And again, I have the direct parallel between corporate world when I went into a corporate and I was told we're, a, we are a customer what are our values? We're a customer-centered organization. And this was directed at me. And this is what I was supposed to internalize this and live it. 
and you know the, the the mismatch between say what corporate values are and what a what we were doing in a sporting context was after I think like maybe the fourth year potentially maybe the fifth into the fifth year we were getting this dual standard and we weren't succeeding when I say dual standard was we had people who were part of the original things we still had those words written up at the wall humble relentless disciplined and but there was a quite a rotation in the organization. And, and again, you're talking to this young lad and we're just there going, trying to give him feedback and talking about, oh, you know, you that doesn't fit our values. You know, you, you weren't humble or relentless in that thing. And he's there, I don't know what you mean by that. And that was a real light bulb moment because you're going, okay, you weren't in that room. You don't get to, or you don't understand exactly what they mean it's time to do it again okay guys the words are going to be different but the mechanism is going to be the same so to have a you to have a, a a set of values that haven't changed with an organization to have the same ones from 20 years ago it's not a that's not you know that's not a thing you should be shouting from the rooftops you know that's a that's a cross you're carrying with you and will carry you know it is is slowing you down People change their perception changes, how their interactions, how their managers change, how an organization re- relates with their demograph changes. Um, so if you're not continually reviewing what I call values, you know, you're already antiquated and you're already behind the, you know, no matter how techy and modern and anything you might perceive yourself to be if you're out of touch you're out of touch and it's a constant cycle isn't it and that's the thing that keeps organizations fresh and innovative and agile now is that constant looking um at our behaviors and consistency in terms of behaviors would you agree yeah well i'd even go like a a little bit further on that the the gap the gap in sports between the CEO and the, you know, the academy reserves is not that big. You know, it's probably two or three layers. If you really wanted to see the CEO of a sporting organization, you could go in and, and you could do it. And very rarely does the CEO mandate a whole club, unless you're Roman Abramovich, perhaps. Um, yeah. But it's usually left to the head coach. And the head coach will decide. And, and even that, so the, point, the point I'm trying to make it here is, the traditional mechanism for decision making is, I'm sorry, and this isn't against broad strokes, but is that a board or a CEO or an MD will mandate and then expect um, expect adoption right the way tr- down through the um, to the the pyramid. Now, I, I have no problem with a top down organization, as in there needs to be structure, there needs to be levels of responsibility. We won't get into the into the tangent of how people get into positions of responsibility, but if you assume for this conversation that the right people are in the positions of responsibility um, to manage people with that skill set, even if you mandate in that type of a um, an organization, you still won't get adoption across thing because the people at the bottom know people who deliver at the coalface on a daily basis they know the people they're interacting with. And if you don't involve them in that decision-making process, 
how you know the the people you know the the how many CEOs, how many MDs, how many boards are at the coalface on a on a daily basis. I'd say you could count them on a on on one hand, but they're probably the most successful ones because they understand one, they understand their people, which is human capital, which is yeah. so so important, and they will see they will know things that you can never know about your business because if you're a successful leader, you are working on the business. You're no longer working in it. So if you don't know what's happening in it, how can you possibly working on it? And like, and I think that that is so obvious in sport um, that you have to, because they're the guys, because a coach is completely intertwined. It's, it's, such, it's such a beautiful um, and obvious metaphor, not even a metaphor, but it's a, it's a picture in, in sport. You can see a coach on the sideline and he can't do anything about it anymore because the players are on the pitch. But that happens in a, any organization. You're selling chocolates. By the time it's in a shop, you're <laughs> you you have no uh, you have no control on that. But everything that happens in between, you can. But once it's in the shop window, you know you guys as a thing you, you'll sink you'll sink sink and uh, or, or swim with it. So uh, like that for that for me is the, the the human capital and the knowing every aspect of the people that work within your organization. It'd be great if you could know everybody, but let's 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 not stray into the realms of um, of fantasy. But understanding people that work in your organization is so important. And coupled with that, then in terms of understanding people, then we talked about having clear communication. So you were talking about you know the messaging from Ronan O'Gara there, how he really simplified, you know. Um, their approach. Can you tell me more about you know that point that you were making yesterday? Yeah, I was talking about the, the the ability to communicate, and I, I, I think there's a great phrase around that, finding the common language. Um, so being able to explain what's in your head so that everybody understands it, so there is absolute clarity. But that message will need to be ta- tailored in multiple ways. Um, I just liked uh, Rona Gary was talking about a an attacking philosophy in in rugby for um, for La Rochelle, and um, it was just beautifully explained. It was clear, it was transparent, and it was you know easy to consume. Um, I just thought that was a unique skill. Now, there's a huge huge amount of coaching then goes into the you know the, the the blocks but each one of those blocks contribute to a philosophy and i just thought that was it was just beautifully explained because you can get lost in jargon and in waffle speak but it was very clear the way he spoke after watching how his team played you went very very easy to connect that what they're doing on a daily basis is contributing to the philosophy or the way they want to play play the game and that's you know whether it's sport or business, could that be any more than what you want? And players seem to be happy and they look to enjoy the game and they're playing the game the way it, it meant to be. And I think another example of that is, and there's a very rare commodity um, in life and it's about honesty. Um, and one of the things about honesty, and, and I got that taste of it when I was a young guy asking them, you know, what did they, what did they think? How do they think I was going? Um, but also I got a, a taste of it with uh, Joe Schmidt. And I remember going, um, I, uh, on reflection, I'd, I'd lost a little bit of uh, love for the game at that 
at this point in 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 my life, and it would I'd become a little bit stale, and I needed a and I needed a kick up the bum, and I actually got one. So it was a European Cup match, and I got um, read out the team, and I wasn't picked, and I was a little bit nose out of joint. I was on the bench now, little you know, knocking the door into Joe. I was like, hey, listen, you know, not starting any reason. He said, ah, oh, you know, maybe kind of. Yeah, probably playing you know, a little bit off 70, 80%. You know. And I was like, yeah, yeah, wouldn't disagree with that, but probably still playing better than the two guys you picked. And he's there. Yeah, wouldn't disagree with that. And I was like, oh, okay, really struggling here, mate. You're going to have to help me out. Why am I starting? And he's like, because they're, they're going at 100%. And like, absolutely hated that response. I like, hated it. But I couldn't argue with it. Brutal honesty, yeah. really. And like, what did I do? I went away and was like, "What am I doing?" Okay, sleep is out. Not doing. Haven't done my passing in a while. Haven't done any tackle. I was like, "Oh my goodness, I'm like, I'm coasting here." And I'd go on my second Lions tour six months later. Okay, so so in terms of the, you said you were going stale there, you got that feedback then, and. Did you? It's a bit like, did you reach out for help? You know, I know you were talking about, you know, something that Declan Kidney said to you before. How did you overcome that then? Because you know, yeah, because you to me are like that. That definition of of the informal leader, like from for me observing you as as a punter, you know. So, could you tell me more about that? Yeah, like great question. Um, Humble is a word that is bandied about and you know that was the reason why I touched on that it was one of the values that we'd incorporated into when I when we were very successful in in with Leinster and Declan said he was my under 19s rugby coach and as well as my Leinster and then we won a grand slam with him in Ireland but when I was really really young and Declan again is his real strength is not rugby he doesn't I wouldn't say it's never going to go down as a tactician or anything like that, but it's preparing individuals and teams to excel. Like puts so much effort to, and I would say too much sometimes and loses too much of himself in it, but he invests so much in people. And that is, you know, and it's credit to him. And I remember like him at that time when I was 19 and I was a little bit gone wayward, definitely put some time into me. And one of the things he would talk about was balance. And, you know, he talked about a stool and he's there, you know, if you only have life and rugby, you have a two-legged stool and you're going to fall off. If, you know, you need a third leg and imagine how sturdy that stool would be if you had a fourth leg. I was looking at him going, you're a little bit nuts. But again, I would understand that later in my life. But one of the things he just said, like, he just, he was, and it was really powerful. He just said, like, no, Gordon, you're, you're down now. And there's lots of hands around there that will help you get up off the ground. But if you don't stick your hand up, if you don't, if you don't reach out, you're never going to get off the ground. And it was really like interesting. And it was just like, okay, so you need to be able to, you need to be humble enough and you need to ask for help because you can't do it on your own. And that was a very, very clear message. And I, and I definitely adopted that because, you know, there's two sides to, to feedback. It's one, it's being given it. And then the second bit is being asked for it. So I've asked for it once. 
I never stopped asking for it. So you can call it feedback. You can call it help. I always wanted to be better. So I was continuing analysis and analysis, doing analysis on myself. So, you know, how do I get better? How do I think, you know, when my game changed, how do I evolve it again to stay at the top table? But you go to the people who can help you. So in the example you talked about there, Joe Schmitz, he's there, you know, picked me, you know, I also come back in and knock on the thing and say, going, what do I do here? And he said, oh, I want to, you know, you need to, can you improve on this, 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 and this? I was like, absolutely. And he's like, show me. And then I can go away. I can take, I can take control of it. I can take ownership of it. So once you trust the person that's, I suppose, setting your targets, KPIs, whatever you want to call them, yeah. once you trust that they're going to, um, I suppose that they're going to be honest and say that you're telling me if I hit these targets, X, X and Y will happen. Once you trust them in that, you can take ownership of it. You can run with it. You can, you know, when you start, you know, those that jargony words, you can take ownership of, you can run with it. But that's what that means. You say going, okay, well, let's, let's set a KPI together. What do you want from me? Oh, maybe I can go higher. Maybe this is more realistic. Cool. Set them. Now you go and deliver them. If you deliver them, I'll give you a shot. And you were talking, you know, yesterday as well about goal setting. Now, I don't know if you want to go into the your, your the corporate day out goal setting piece there <laughs> about, you know, something that's actionable or not. Listen, it's up to yourself if you want to go there. But especially in terms of performance reviews, I'm just curious about your thoughts there. Is it is it that we set the targets ourselves, you know, as like I'm the person that's delivering these, This is these are what it is, or should I get it from my manager then to be stretch goals that say, listen, these are these are things that we need to strive towards. Like, what are your thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, like listen. I think when you get into the, the corporate world, you have to understand the environment that you that you're winning it that you're existing in. I think that's where we have the mismatch and the mistempo within organizations because um, assume and presume are the two worst words when it comes to mm-hmm. um, working in an organization. Um, how people get into positions of responsibilities. We touched on this yesterday. I don't think we need to go in massively into it, but that system of yeah. promotion and reward is it's broken because everybody wants to be promoted because it's ingrained. It's a massive bias in our uh, being from our parents in the segment. It's all about, you know, my parents was all about get an education, get a college degree, and that'll be fine. I ended up as a professional player. <laughs> <laughs> you know um how you progress is all about get your promotion get to manager then you get to a, you know whatever the the next thing is but we reward performance and if you are a brilliant salesperson and now you're head of sales that doesn't mean you have a bigger client base that means you manage everyone in your sales team but your skill set is selling that to me is fundamentally broken it's like promoting me uh, who's clearly very very comfortable in that informal leadership group to club captain it's not going to go well because now i have this all this other distraction which is looking after being responsible for the team when actually my strength is being is is living the values of that team you know it it just it always makes my it always makes the the whole thing change because the amount of people who get promoted on performance but then they're 
human capital, their man management skills or their person management skills, their ability to communicate is brutal or it's just non-existent. So, and I, again, I've had examples of that where I've been getting a review and going, I don't respect you professionally. A lovely person, but I don't respect you professionally. Why would I listen to you? And I went and asked and said, could I have somebody else do my review? And I was looked like I had, you know, I had Medusa, you know, about eight different heads. Um, but I got my review and I was like, okay, I respect this person. And yeah, that I can, I can now deliver what you're telling me to do. Um, and I yeah. think that that is like, that's so important in a, uh, in an organization because KPIs, you know, are they organizationally structured? Are they individually structured? Are they set by a manager? Is the manager the right person to be setting them? Because realistically, everything we do, and we talk, sorry, I'm kind of jumping over and back here, but you talk about goal setting. Um, and if we say we want to win the Heineken Cup or we want to uh, increase our production by 30%, whatever it is, everything we do on a daily basis will ultimately deliver what we do in a year's time or two years time. So why wouldn't you structure the whole organization to go, what are we doing? Are we being the best we can be today? And are, are all our actions, efforts aligning to, to all of that? And I don't think that joined up type of thinking is there because you can just, I suppose the, the, the more you go down the management chain, and that's important, not the leadership chain, the management chain, the more, the less effort is put into how the next layer down is managed and structured and, and put together. Um, but I'm like, listen, and I'm a slave to this type of thinking that if you co-create with somebody and whatever the targets are, for me, the targets are I'm agnostic on the targets, but whatever they are, understand with that person, did they hit them? Why did they hit them? Let's do better. Did they not hit them? Why did you not hit them? Let's do better. But that takes effort. It takes it you, you, take effort. Your, your, yeah. your turn. I love it. Human capital. But spending time with them. Sorry, before we drift off this, one of the uh, things that um, Joe Schmidt did when he uh, came into Le uh, Leinster was, um, like, we're European champions, we're brilliant, we're everything. What did he do? First thing he came in on was asked everybody to shake hands. First thing's there going, and everybody's looking at him going like six heads, and he's like, going, what? What? Why? And he just said, guys, you know, very French thing, and you know, he, and he and he dressed it up as something else. That guys. Um, we're going to shake hands. He said, it's a very French thing. I'm French. You know, I've, I've New Zealander living in France. You know, make me feel at home. Just let's, let's just do it. Really like one of the, I think, cleverest things he ever did because immediately people you would never have batted an eyelid at, you had to shake hands. Because you, we said like across the organization, you meet anybody, got to shake. If you haven't shaken, first time you meet them, you got to shake hands. It doesn't matter if it's two o'clock in the afternoon, first thing in the morning, shake hands. It was so powerful because it breaks down barriers. Yeah. It was like, it it's was like physical connection. Absolutely. But like those guys in the academy, I didn't even know their name. And I was like going, oh, suddenly this is so-and-so. And then he was like, because you're not just going to shake a hand and go, hi. Eventually you stop and chat and go, oh, how are your parents? How are your, you know, probably not how are your parents, you know, what you do at the weekends, you're playing for the club, you know, a club. And suddenly you're getting all these little bits 
and you have a little connection with that person. Because like at some point, there's a high chance you're going to be sharing a pitch with them. Um, and then like in an organization, you're like, how many people do you pass? It's just, you know, and that's really say, you know, that's that human investment, that capital investment in people. Um, how do you make their existence, their value? How do you, how do you, how do you derive value for them in a, in an organization? That is what everybody wants, whether it is the guy who's going in and doing, um, you know, the academy guy who's going in and is not going to play one game, but how do you value his, how do you create value for him on a daily basis? The person who's doing data entry, the person who is doing data science, how, how you create value for them on a daily basis is like, it's, it's so important, but it, I, it's almost like a full-time job I'm, I'm, I'm kind of describing here is like that, in, that investment. How would you have time to do your own job? That's what we're saying. Then it's ludicrous to, in, <laughs> to promote somebody who's brilliant at sales to that type of a role. You're just going, the, the skill sets that are being, that are coming out now, I think the pandemic has been phenomenal for this, but the skill sets that are coming out that are required for people to be happy at work. This isn't sport. This is just work. Are so rare that there's a whole generation that are going to have to understand them and you know we talked about this that there's a whole evolution that's going to have to come in leadership and management and everything like that because people are going they want more from work the intrinsic motivation is becoming much more uh valuable than the the extrinsic motivation of money and that's where you know these informal leaders are so vital to the organization so these people may not have the positional power of management but they're still demonstrating leadership through that personal power and that personal power is done being being social connectors being networking you know introducing to people you know highlighting the strengths of another person you talked about strengths then and gallop strengths and and uh, yesterday where you're really interested in this and also you were talking about Paul O'Connell but you know in terms of that strength then and play to your strengths, can you give people an insight to, you know, those people that were in the dressing room or those people you witnessed in the corporate world, what is it their strengths were these informal leaders? Yeah, like the the the, the strengths piece is uh, is really interesting because it, it kind of flips the feedback mechanism on its head because the traditional and it's it's not just an Irish thing. Um, it seems to be probably exasperated in Ireland. Is we focus on our weaknesses and we get better with our weaknesses. Now you don't you don't sweep weaknesses under under uh, under a carpet, but yeah, you do focus on your strengths. What are, are you good at? What do you excel at? And how do you help a person to focus on that and to and to deliver? And then you know when you're in a team, you have a if you can develop that kind of strength-based approach you can take aspects you, you so you can, you can you can put people together to create more and, and i think you know paulie would have you know the, a guy who and lots of great leaders that, that would have worked under um they understand that the i suppose the the sum of the parts the value is in this is is in more than some of the, the some of the parts, and they will contribute. And they, if you can get them working together, if you can get them delivering on their strengths, put those pieces of the puzzle together, that they will um, they will they will deliver more than the individuals uh, within the you know the some of the some of the parts. 
Um, I think that's that's a that's an approach that for me is really really powerful. Um, the and again, it's that you know it's just flipping things on their head and and focusing on strengths rather than you know the the where the where you might traditionally focus on on the weaknesses and then it's that almost that you know two to one or three to one it's like on oh, these are the three things you're brilliant at how do we make you better at that and then listen here's one thing that you know unfortunately you have to you you have to you have to pick up on yeah and it is about having you know that radical candor you know to quote Kim Scott, you know, it's that, you know, you care personally for the person, don't you? But you're also really challenging them. And I think that's that's the thing is to get the balance right, because people sometimes, you know, do it kind of in a very maybe over challenging way or maybe do it, maybe not say anything at all. And I think not saying anything at all is even more dangerous than you know, that, that over a certain conflict piece. I think so. But I think it's, again, it's then it's, you know, and we talked about the ability to deliver feedback is, and deliver messages, not just feedback, but deliver key messages. You know, sometimes there is, a, like, you have to manage, you say, guys, this is what I need done. Um, but it's that key message at a group level, but then that individual piece, do you trust the, people to like if you talk if you say if there's a, a manager piece below your key message do you trust them to deliver the message um you know because as you said some people will want stretch targets some people will want to be told exactly what to do don't tell me you know think about this and do that they will say give me a task and i will deliver that and then there's other people who will go you know they, they want to be involved in everything, so it's it, that, that's it's that facilitating facilitating role. Um, and you talked about the you know the the you know the, the informal leaders and in all of this, and I think you know the there's the danger then people can kind of look and go like, who are they? You know, in, within an organization, and they may not be obvious. They won't be obvious. You'll actually have to take time and find them um, because they're the ones that hold the fabric of a group together. Um, and if you're not looking for them, you won't see them. And that is because you're probably busy doing what you're doing, but you talk about, like, and a culture isn't always just about high performance. It is that social aspect um, and that, you know, the the human side of things um, away from it. And I think Paulie was always very good at what a very, very competitive, very, very driven individual. And there's also a guy who spent an awful lot of time sitting in our team room waiting for people to sit down, have a cup of tea and have a, have a chat. That was his way of finding the tempo of the group and, and just enjoyed talking. Um, and you'd think, you know, you go into the workplace then, who are the people that organize the coffees, who, you know, those little things, you can easily label them and be lazy and label them as old busybodies and everything like that. But they do care. And that's really, really important. Uh, piece and finding those people who care um, are usually the ones that go above and beyond. And I think when you transition, when you when you move from the sporting context to the uh, corporate context, you know th- those people who go above and beyond, and finding those people and going, okay, how do we help these guys to be into a more informal leadership role? Um, because they're already doing it. And now how do you give them tools to be even better at that? And it's really about, you know, for me, I'm trying to maybe offer advice to people in in senior management positions there, right? 
So to recognize these informal leaders, is it that these are the people who practice that organization citizenship? You know, these are people who knit the social fabric together. Are they the things that we should be looking out for, these people who live the values? Or what are the kind of insights or what should we be looking out for? Well, I think um, the the like, I think that's probably a jump too soon, um, William. I would say you also have to look at how you operate on a on a, on a daily basis, and you know the the managerial train ch- uh, train um, a chain in in your organisation, and um, and you know you've got to understand the people within your organisation from. And reluctant to say the bottom, but the the coal face of the organization, because if you don't, if you just rely on your managers into that, you, and they're not the right people, you're you, you've already got a, a misalignment within your within your organization. So um, I think there's people. If you if you if you know, and I don't think believe is the right word. If you know your culture is strong and the values represent the people within it. Then yeah, you, you 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 it'll be it'll be very easy and obvious to see those um, informal leaders because they will be the people putting their hands up and they'll be the people celebrated within the organization. I think it's and they'll be the and your company will you, know, you probably have a high satisfaction um, from within your company and if you've if you successfully created that there will be people saying you know I really enjoy my work here and why do they enjoy their work there? The, the unwritten bit there is that they feel they're contributing to whatever the business is trying to do. Um, and I think if you're not at there, that's when the easy thing is to try and focus on one thing and say, I'll fix that. It doesn't happen like that. Unfortunately, it is a virtuous circle. And for the circle to get bigger, you need to focus on all aspects of it. Uh, and that is where, you know, you and I could spend hours and hours and hours talking about this because we're so passionate about it and we've seen it in it, that change is slow and incremental. But that should not deter mm. people from trying to change it because the value of... You talk about discretionary effort. When you create a environment for people to succeed and to feel valued, that their contribution is valued. And it's important to note that, that their contribution doesn't matter that that every level um, that their contribution is valued. That's where you will build discretionary effort. And when you start getting discretionary effort, that's when you start seeing informal leaders coming through. And there's no limit to those informal leader, lemurs because they will inspire and you get this positive peer pressure. Again, lots of buzz, buzzwordy things here, but it does happen. But it is slow and it's painful um, because you have to acknowledge that things may not be working perfectly today. And that is hard for an awful lot of people. And I think that's what's really important, you know, uh, in terms of, I suppose, the the workplace that we're going to find ourselves back in is, is how do we keep that talent? How do we retain that talent that are so vital to the organization, you know, working well, 
you know. And, and, and as we come towards the end of the podcast, I want to give you, you know, a chance to give some key kind of takeaways uh, for people. But, you know, I think that's the whole reason why we did this podcast is really to praise that those informal leaders and really allow them to flourish in the way that really keeps that culture uh, together. So I'm going to give you an opportunity now, Gordon, just to maybe give us some kind of key takeaways. Yeah, like, uh, listen, um, you know, it's been it's been a very, very enjoyable uh, conversation, William. So thank you. We probably should have recorded yesterday's chat as well. Um, exactly. Um, like, for me, it's the human capital side of things is there is no, there's no limit to the amount you should be investing in understanding the people that work for you. Um, and helping them to succeed at at at, at every level. Um, as I said, there isn't a shortcut to having a um, having a a successful uh, work environment. Um, the majority, unless it's been built from the ground up, uh, the majority with that in mind, the majority of of uh, work environments are fundamentally flawed. Um, and the size of the challenge shouldn't put anybody off making any sort of change because any sort of change is better. And um, we'll kind of, mm. you know, we'll we'll move towards move towards that. And if you wanted to define and a you know a north star work environment, then you break it back into goals and break it back, break it back, and say, what are we going to do today to make this better? Um, but there are listen, there are some tough tough conversations that need to be had. The way we operate uh, and have operated, um, the legacy is not is not the one that's going to succeed uh, going forward. Um, there's a whole generation coming through that have a different uh, view on life, and I've talked about that. The the how you create uh, a feeling of value for them, and this is every every piece of literature has said us that the next generation coming through want to know how that social responsibility, they want to know how they're contributing to what the organization is doing. And I think the companies that will be at the forefront for the next decade will be the ones that really sit down and think about how do we incorporate that into the way we, um, we deliver our, um, how, how, do, how, do, how on the way we deliver. Um, and it's going to take time. Um, because um, we changed a whole organization in Leinster Rugby, but it probably took four years. And that's a sporting organization with probably less than 500 people left. So cultural overhaul in a, and that's without the HR department, a cultural overhaul in a large organization is going to be slow and going to be incremental. But I can, the, the last thing I'm going to leave with this, William, is that I know firsthand in times in the stressful times, that's when a culture with your values matter. Um, and I've seen it in a sporting context when we excelled when the pressure came on. I've also seen it in a business context that everybody reverted to self-preservation and I'll look after myself, Jack, type of approach, where had they embraced the loose uh, Oh, cultural or the values that have been, they couldn't have, but you know, that a culture and values is culture on your value system is at its most valuable under times of real stress and pressure. 
And if you've done it right, you will absolutely um, reap the rewards. Um, so the the pain is, you know, the squeeze is definitely worth it. Yeah, and it's an investment, isn't it? It's it, and, and this is what we covered yesterday. It was that investment of time before the pressure points happening, you know, that mm. is really vital then. So in terms of if when there's pressure points happening, this is where we teams can break up or people leave or whatever. So it is about when things are going good that we invest to make that culture really strong, isn't it? Yeah, like when, you know, the 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 the, the best... I suppose when things are going well is when they start to look and they start to go, okay, how do I, what do I do next? Because it's that hunger to continually evolve and to continually change. Um, And I think that's, you know, as relevant in the, in the workplace as, as not as like, say, people are, you know, but if you, to, to evolve, you have to be continually, continually tinkering with, how we interact and how we work. And, um, and again, you know, you can't know without asking and people will tell you. And I think there's a, there's that psychological security as well for people to, um, speak honestly back to an employer. And that's something as very rare. So I've only seen it with people who are so confident in their own ability that they're happy. They will give it, very very clearly back to the to the employer um and that shouldn't be the case because you should want you know uh, honest you should want honesty uh reciprocal honesty um but again goes back to trust is earned and respect is earned both ways yeah and it's that and it's that mutual trust that happens that creates that psychological uh, safety and you know are you open to feedback and a bit like yourself you were talking about how you went from being you know defensive to feedback to actually kind of going yeah do I respect this person you know in terms of what they're going to say and you know it's about you know trusting those informal leaders that say listen we've got a problem here we need to fix it yeah All right. absolutely hit the nail on the head William so Gordon, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really insightful. I really enjoyed um, talking to you and listening to your anecdotes. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. It's absolutely my pleasure. That's it for this episode of the Workplace Podcast. My special thanks to this week's guest for a wonderful discussion. If you want to get in contact with a podcast about a workplace topic or a particular challenge that you're facing, contact me via Twitter at Different Paths. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, William Corless, C-O-R-L-E-S-S, or go to my website, www.yellowwood.ie. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner, provider executive coaching, facilitation, and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team, and organization.